We're on the home stretch now in our Ephesians series. As you look at the big picture of the book of Ephesians, we've talked about this a number of times, uh, chapters 1 to 3 are very doctrinal and theological, talking about the majesty of God, what God has done through Christ and the Holy Spirit, very Trinitarian. And then in the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 to 6, uh, Paul begins to make practical application to the Christian life from those doctrinal realities. He says, because this is true of God, this is now true in our life. And last week we saw Paul applying the doctrine of our union with Christ to our ability to live morally. We saw that Christian religion is indeed a moral religion, that behavior is important, but that moral behavior does not grow from our own self-control or self-will, but in fact our moral behavior is rooted in the doctrine of our unity with Christ, in our understanding Christ. Paul said, learn Christ. And when you learn Christ and who you are in Christ, then moral behavior flows. And now... As we move into this week, Paul's going to get a little more specific about more than just general moral behavior. He's going to address three spheres of the Christian life in society. He's going to talk about our life as Christians as spouses in marriage. He's going to talk about our Christian life as parents with children. And he's going to talk about our Christian life as employees or employers in the workforce. So there's different spheres in social life in which we wear the Christian hat, so to speak. And so Paul is now delving a little more specifically into various spheres of the Christian life and how our roles as Christians are meant to play out because we are Christians. And I'm going to focus mainly on marriage, quite heavily on the marriage aspect this morning, but I will touch on briefly parenting and work as well near the end in application. And so Paul's going to explain that if if you are going to get marriage right, you have to frame your marriage in the light of another doctrine. Again, practical reality is going to come from doctrinal truth. And the doctrinal truth that Paul is going to root this in is the doctrine or the truth of the relationship of Christ and the church. And so he says, if, if you as Christians are going to get your marriages the way God wants your marriages, you have to understand the relationship of Christ to the church. And if you frame the husband-wife relationship in any other way than as Christ and the church, your marriage will not make sense. It won't work. And so what Paul is going to teach here this morning is going to come across as very countercultural. This is a very short couple of paragraphs, but just look at all the social issues and social discourse that the Apostle Paul is going to stir the pot on here. Things like the definition of marriage, equality, dignity, gender, parenting, human rights, classism, right? Like if, if you're having a dinner party and conversation is sort of lulled into an awkward silence, just bring up Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 6, 9 and just see how things liven up, right? Because you got all of these issues, right? Gender, equality, you know, human rights, dignity, authority. It's all in there. Paul's just like stirring up the pot. Right, And it only takes a couple of sentences. But the Christian life and Christian values in these social spheres is going to rub up against and it's going to be very different than any cultural or social instincts that we have apart from God. Doesn't that make sense? If you have cultures and societies that have been running from God and fleeing God and rebelling against God for generation upon generation, then when God comes along and says, here's the way things work in my family, there's going to be differences, right? 
And, and they're going to rub up against each other. And that's what happens here because Paul comes along and says, this is how marriage and parenting and work and employment works in, in the sphere of how God would have us live as Christians. And that rubs up against our social and our cultural instincts. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we as Christians have to decide, is the Bible true all the way through, or do we just pick the parts of it that we like? As Tim Keller has stated, and I like the way he sums this up and phrases it so simply, he says to Christians, if, if you find that your God never disagrees with you, then you are probably worshiping a glorified version of yourself. Right? At some point where we're reading the Word of God, when the creator of the universe is speaking to us, we have to disagree at some point or else we're just worshiping ourselves, right? Just, we've just taken our own ideas and decided to project them onto God. And so let's read this text and see what it has to say, mainly about Christian life and marriage and how we understand it in light of Christ and the church and how it rubs up against our own 21st century culture in North America. And let me just pray before we read Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning that we get to sit under your teaching. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to it and softens our heart to receive it. Father, we pray that it would be transformative, that it would make real difference this week and in the weeks to come and in the years to come in our lives and in our marriages and as we parent and as we work in this community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 5, I'm just going to do the part on marriage, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word." so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then it goes on into down to six nine, but I'll touch on that later. So first of all, we look at marriage and culture, and the first thing we want to be aware of here is just how countercultural this teaching is. Not just counter to our culture today, which is how it lands on us. And we think this is very, the first part is very countercultural to us today, right? But this was countercultural in Paul's day. The first part was countercultural in, or this first part was not countercultural in his day. The second part was. This whole section, Paul is at odds with whatever culture he encounters. Okay, this was countercultural when Paul spoke it, considering the Roman culture. You have to understand, uh, in the Roman or Greek culture that Paul is speaking into the city of Ephesus here, marriage was a very simple social contract. It was not romantic. It did not very often involve love. Marriage was generally an agreement between two families. Parents would consult in their social circles or in their class of society, <coughs> excuse me, that they moved in. And they would look for a pairing that would improve their social standing. And this is why, if you remember Shakespeare, this is why Romeo and Juliet was such a scandal, because they were different classes of society, and they weren't supposed to marry because of love, and, you know, everybody was all upset about Romeo and Juliet. 
because it was the wrong social class is marrying out of love instead of duty. And so in Roman culture, marriage was negotiated and gifts were exchanged. The dowry or the payment that came with the bride was agreed on and a contract was written up. And then the whole deal was sealed at a ceremony with a kiss. Did you know at your wedding that you were participating in a pagan ritual? Um, might want to rethink that. No, I'm just kidding you. I'm just kidding you. Don't make more of it than it is. Just keep, keep kissing your brides. That's fine. Um, but, but, that's, but that's where that came from. So this is, in Roman culture, marriage was pretty easy, and, and so was divorce. Marriage was a declaration to live together and have children that would be heirs of the father. Divorce was simply a declaration that the union was over. And if a woman was divorced, she could expect to receive her dowry back in full, and she would just go back to her father and potentially start over again. And that was it. The contract was unwound, and that was that. And so the point here is that marriage was not primarily rooted in love. It was not a covenant. It was a contract. It could be easily dissolved. And then beyond marriage, within the Roman household, it was ruled by the husband, the pater familia. The father could legally disown his children. He could sell them into slavery. He could even kill them. After a baby was born, the midwife just set the child on the ground before the father, and the child was only accepted if the father picked it up. If the father didn't pick it up, because it was deformed or for whatever reason, then it was exposed. And it was exposed in various places in the city that people knew about, and it was left there either to die or people could come and pick up that baby and raise it and then probably sell it into slavery later on. But the the father had ultimate dominion over his household. It was the father who decided. And the wife, or the mater familia, was usually about 10 years younger than the husband and didn't have any formal authority in the household. So just, so just hold on to that idea of Roman marriage and Roman households as Paul is speaking into this text. And then also now consider our 21st century North American culture. 2,000 years later, we can see the similarities and the differences that exist in our current social attitudes towards marriage. In our culture today, in the last 20 to 30 years, marriage has become the definitive sphere of debate in our culture with regards to equality, rights, gender, power, self-determination, parenting, and a whole bunch of other topics. Marriage has basically become the center of debate in our culture. And as a culture, we've spent the last 20, 30 years asking ourselves, what is marriage anyway? Does marriage even exist? Who is marriage for? What is its purpose? Who is allowed to be married? What are the roles within marriage? Who owns what in a divorce? Even who is allowed to parent and what are parents allowed to teach or or to do with their own kids? And I'm not going to belabor or expand on our own cultural issues with marriage because I think all of you are very much aware of those issues. But as we approach this text, the first thing I want to see you want I want you to see is just how countercultural it is in Paul's day and also countercultural in our day. And we have to decide when the Bible rubs up against our culture and our instincts, do we believe the Bible is true all the way through or do we simply pick and choose what it is that we want to believe about the Bible for ourselves? And so now we think about how the words of Paul and Ephesians land on both the Roman culture and our own culture and we find God's counterculture. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So the first three sentences here hit gender, equality, power, dignity, selfhood, and personhood. The first one is gender, wives and husbands. Uh, It's interesting here, the Greek words used for husband and wives, as they are in all places in Greek literature, are simply the generic word for man and woman. Okay, There is no 
There is no word in Greek for husband or wife. There's just aner, which is the man, and, and gyne, which is the woman. And so they're translated as wife or husband. It's always in context. So this literally reads, woman, submit or be subject to your own man. Now, in the Roman culture, that part of the sentence would not have caused any great controversy. Paul is not countercultural at this point in Roman uh, culture. All the Romans are on board with him. That is correct. The paterfamilia is the head of the family, and everybody should submit to him. But it is marriage that is about women and men. And of course, the Romans had their heterosexual, and some of them had homosexual concubines, but that was nothing new. But they understood that marriage was between men and women, and marriage was about family dynasty. Nothing countercultural here in Paul's world so far. But now in our culture, the immediate question becomes raised. Well, why woman and man? Why not man and man or woman and woman? What, what do you even mean woman and man? Doesn't Paul know that there's a spectrum of gender? How can we even talk about gender roles when there are dozens, if not hundreds, of genders? And now, this is not a sermon about that. There, there are sermons online about that if you want to go and listen to them. But you realize how immediately in our culture what Paul is saying here you can't even get out of the first half of the first sentence without running into problems. What are you talking about men and women being married? What are you talking about men and women? How can you even have a conversation about gender? This just becomes ridiculous to our cultural, in our culture's eyes today. And then, even if we set gender fluidity aside for another discussion, which we would need to do, Paul says here that women should be subject to or submit to their own man. And so now let's also talk about equality and human rights and feminism and dignity. What can this mean that a woman submits to her man? How hopelessly out of date is this? And then Paul doubles down on his statement of order or role within the marriage by literally saying, for the husband is the head of the wife. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> so, so again, when Paul is writing this in the first century, he's not expecting there to be much reaction to the first couple of sentences. He's thinking everybody's on board with me in my culture. That's the part that the Roman culture and Paul would not get no argument about. The paterfamilia is the head of the family, the materfamilia or the wife. In fact, everyone in the house is subject to the husband. In Roman culture, the offense isn't going to start to happen until the third or fourth sentences. But in our culture today, the offense begins immediately with submission and headship and equality or even gender roles. So let's just talk very briefly about those and get them in a gospel context. And, and remember how important context is to what Paul is teaching and how context prevents us from letting one small part of Scripture contradict the message of a wider and larger message of Scripture. So first of all, backing up a little, Paul says in terms of context that wives are to submit to their own husbands. In other words, wives are not subject to every man. They're not to submit to every man, they're subject to their one man, to their own husband. And so these verses can't be taken as a blanket statement about the inequality of all women to all men. Wives are subject to their own man, not to just any man. And they're only subject to one man. They're not subject to any other man. They're only subject to their husband. And to emphasize it, likewise, Paul says that husbands are to love your own wife. Husbands, you are not to love other women the way you love your wife. You're to love one woman the way you love your wife. And so we see here that this is 
put within the context of marriage, Paul is emphasizing that this is not some blanket statement about equality or inequality. This is about a relationship between two unique people and only those two people. You only submit to your husband and you only love your, you love your own wife only in this way. So in terms of equality, Paul's saying that not all women are universally subject to all men. He's, he's saying there's a unique sphere of the Christian life, this sphere of marriage in which there's special roles for the husband and wife. He's not talking about at work. He's not talking about in government. He's not talking about at school. He's not talking about out in society in general, that this is how women and men are to interact with each other. He's saying only in this sphere of marriage with your own husband and your own wife do these roles take place. They don't apply in other spheres of society. Then we can see it again. That's the first context. Then we see the immediate context of submission <coughs> Excuse me. that we have literally from the sentence that Paul writes directly before verse 22. In verse 21, gives us two important pieces of context that are very important to understanding how this marriage relationship works. In 521, he says, of all Christians, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we learn that Christian submission is mutual. It's towards each other. And, it's the important part, that this mutual submission is rooted in reverence or I would use the word treasuring or cherishing or worship of Christ, right? Both of these conditions of Christian submission become increasingly important as, and clear as Paul continues to unfold this text. The fact that it is mutual and the fact that it's rooted in both people treasuring Christ. And as you treasure Christ or reverence Christ or cherish Christ, then your submission is mutual and it's a Christian submission. And then a little earlier, we get more context in Ephesians. Paul gives another broad context for Christian relationships with each other. And husbands and wives are not exempt as Christians from these. Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So just within the immediate context of Ephesians, when we talk about the submission in the context of the husband and wife, in order for it to be Christian in its character, it has to be mutual, it has to be kind, it has to be tender-hearted, it has to be based on mutual forgiveness, it has to be in light of treasuring Jesus, and it has to be done in the sphere of understanding that we are sinners who have received the mercy of God's forgiveness. Because it's important in reading that to understand that whenever two people get married, it's two sinners who say, I do. It's always two sinners who are getting married. It's two sinners who will be bringing their own sin and the grace of God into their marriage. And so this Christian submission that Paul is talking about in context, this Christian submission to each other inside and outside of marriage is in the context of knowing that we are mutually sinners, both forgiven by God, called to be kind to one another. It's such a simple command. Just be kind to each other. And to submit to each other because we treasure or cherish Jesus. That's the context of submission and headship. And so that context throws out the window any notion that submission would look like subjugation. And you need to hear the difference. Submission is not subjugation. They're different words and they're different meanings. There is nothing unkind or demeaning or harsh or non-reciprocal in Christian submission. Paul has not forgotten what he just wrote down 30 seconds earlier. 
Right? He didn't say be kind to one another and tender-hearted and submit to each other in reverence for Christ and then said, husbands, dominate your wives. Right? He, he didn't forget that he just wrote that 30 seconds ago. So the context of Christian submission and the context of Christian headship has to be within the context of being kind and tender-hearted and mutual and in reverence for Christ. Otherwise, it's not Christian submission and it's not Christian headship. And then there's one more context I want to give you looking at this idea of submission in Jesus himself, since we are meant to learn Christ in order to know how to behave. And this is what we learn about how we learn to be like Christ in our humility. And we just heard these verses, so I won't repeat them, but Philippians 2, 3 to 8, um, Allison just read these for us. These verses in Philippians describe Christ who, not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, humbled himself, submitted himself to the rough treatment of his own creation to the point of death on a cross for us. That is submission, and that is also headship. Christ is the head of the church, and this is the headship of Christ in context. And so Jesus, who we treasure, we see here a Christ-centered marriage now as we continue in the text. Jesus, who we treasure, has given us an example of what his headship and what his lordship looks like. Jesus' headship and Jesus' lordship looks like sacrifice. It looks like coming down and under in order to lift up. It looks like servanthood and obedience. And it's here that Paul grounds the Christian marriage firmly in the doctrine of Christ's relationship to the church. And let your eyes just scan the next few verses in Ephesians 5. He says, "...the husband is the head of the wife." Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so now when we ask of the text and we ask of ourselves, what does headship and submission or subjection mean? We know from this context what it can't mean. Paul gives us lots of important context words for what the headship of the husband is to look like. Wives get three verses, husbands get six verses. So you guys got to pay attention. This section of the text would be very countercultural now to the Roman society. Okay, the first part, the Romans were all on board. The Romans and the Greeks in the first sentence were like, Paul, you're absolutely right. Men are the head of the household. Wives should submit. They were on board. Our culture was rejecting that part. Now the Roman culture is upset. Okay? Now these verses is where Paul is countercultural to the Roman society. But it's grounded in these two core biblical truths, as already mentioned, the primary one being that Christ and the church and the secondary truth of becoming one flesh or one body in marriage. And I just want to show you here how two doctrines or two truths are now to inform how we are to behave as Christians. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And you see here now the key words that Paul has put in here that that describe what headship looks like. First one being love and gave himself up for her. A Roman paterfamilia who was tracking along very well at the beginning with the head of the house and the husband being the head of the family would suddenly be either very amused or very angry at this idea. He'd be like, love her? 
give myself up for her. Okay, Paul, clearly you have a different idea of what submission means than I do. Yes, that's the point. Paul does have a different idea of what submission means than what the culture thinks. Christian submission is nothing like the cultural idea of submission. This picture of Christ and the church is of selfless serving and protection, so the husband first has a protecting and a redeeming role to play in his headship. Christ rescued his church and protects his church, and in the same way, the husband should be protecting his marriage and guarding the marriage from anything that could threaten the marriage. Men, I ask you, do you guard your marriage? Do you protect your marriage the way Christ protects the church? That is the headship that you're called to. Just as Christ protects his church, you are to protect your marriage. You are to protect your bride. Do you have a you protect the covenant that you have with your wife. And we could spend some time on that, couldn't we? But, but let's just leave it for now. First, we see that headship in this, in the, in the idea that Paul has it is a, is a headship of protecting and serving and guarding what you belong to. And then we see that he says sanctifying. Paul says that in Christ's headship, he cleansed the church. He, he's washing the church so that she would be splendid and holy without any wrinkle or blemish. And so there's a nurturing component to what Paul intends by husband's headship that the wife participates in. And so we can ask the same question. Men, how are you keeping your marriage clean? How are you making your marriage beautiful? How are you keeping your wife and your relationship with your wife clean and beautiful? Are you cleansing your marriage? And we could spend some time on that too, but I'll just let that sit with you men. How is your headship cleansing and sanctifying your marriage? And if you drop down to verse 32, you see Paul says clearly, this is a mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. The word mystery here has been used before in Ephesians. And in other letters by Paul, and the the mystery that he's talking about is not something that we're not able to solve. It's not a mystery like it's a riddle and we don't know what it is. The mystery that Paul's talking about is something that was hidden in the past but is now made plain. And the mystery that Paul is always talking about is that Jesus has united Jews and Gentiles and that there's no longer a wall of hostility. He's the founder of a new covenant that unites all believers in one body under himself. That's the mystery. And so the love of Christ is a covenant love. It's not a social contract. It's not something negotiated and sealed and then unwound if it doesn't work out. Husbands, your love is covenantal like Christ's mysterious love for the church that he would unify sinners together in one body. A contract says, I will do X as long as you do Y. And when you stop doing Y, then I can stop doing X. But a covenant says, I will do X whether you do Y or not. And that's God's covenant relationship with us. He said, I will rescue you. Your hearts will wander. You will betray me. You will walk away from me. You will sin again. But I have covenanted with you that Christ is sufficient and you can't get out of this covenant relationship that I have. It's one-sided. I've decided. I've chosen you. And that's what our marriages are to be like. Paul says, this is a mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church, but I'm also talking about your marriages. This is what Christian marriage is. This is what headship and submission looks like. So not only is the husband to love his wife primarily as Christ loved the church, but he provides, Paul provides a second biblical doctrine to the husband that he remember that he and his wife are one flesh. The idea of one flesh marriage is a biblical truth that Paul refers to here by going back to Genesis 3 and quoting this fact that therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And it's in that biblical truth that Paul grounds his instruction to the husbands. He says you should love your wives like you love your own bodies because 
He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So he's saying this truth about you being one flesh with your wife is to tell you again how much you are to love her. Love your wife like you love yourself because you're one flesh. And then he gives us some more context words. Namely, I'll just pick up on nourish and cherish. And they're very tender terms here. Nourish is anatrepho. And it's used as a parent raising a child. Acts 7.20 refers to Moses being born, being beautiful in God's sight, and being nourished in his father's household. And it's the same word in Hebrew used by Joseph toward his brothers, that he will provide for them, that he will nourish them in the famine. And so the husband has a protecting role and a cleansing role, and and the husband also has a supplying role, a providing role, that the husband is to be nourishing the marriage. And then cherish, thalapo, In the Greek, it's only used one other time by Paul. And the one other time that Paul uses this word cherish, it relates to his own care for the church in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of, and that's the word thalpo, cherishing her own children. So the husband has this tender-hearted care in his love towards his wife, in his headship. And so here's how Paul has framed Christian submission and Christian marriage. If I, if I can just sum this up, as Paul has now, counter to our culture, counter to his culture, said submission and headship is nothing like what you expect out of your culture. Submission and headship is now redefined by the way I'm explaining it to you. This is how I read it in my words. Husbands, you are to take the lead in love of your own wife. And wives are to submit to the love of their own husbands. That's how Paul has framed marriage. He says, husbands, take the lead in loving your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, submit to the love that your husband is showing. That's how he's framed it. Just as Christ leads in loving the church and the church submits to Christ's love, just as a person leads in loving themselves and submits to their own self-love, there's no escaping the text here. This is how it's framed. Paul is saying, husbands, take the head, take the source, take the lead in loving as Christ's love and wives submit to the love of your own husband. Now, if that's how Paul has framed marriage, I suppose, again, coming forward to our culture today, I suppose the only objection left to be raised in our culture would be phrased something like this. But why can't the woman take the lead in love and the man submit to the loving of his wife? I suppose you can ask that question. I mean, if if there's wives out there that wanted to make that argument, she could. And we could ask, why is it, very sincerely, we could ask God, why is it in this sphere of life, within marriage, not in government, not in school, not in work, you know, not in other areas. But why is it in this sphere of Christian life does God have a mutual, equal, but different roles for men and women? Why is that? Why, why does he say men take the lead and women submit to the love of your husband? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he say wives take the lead in love and husbands submit to the love of, of your wife? Why, why is it mutual but different? Why is it une- uneven? And that's a good question. And I suppose we could speculate on reasons that are rooted in creation and physiology or psychology or nurture or nature or child raising. There might be lots of reasons that we could look to and say, well, this is why God structured marriage this way. But we don't need to get into all those things. Because primarily, why has God structured marriage this way? 
Paul makes it clear. Because of Christ and the church. There is a specific picture of love that God wants to show through marriage. And I guess I would ask, why would we deny God the right to show His love the way He wants to show it? God wants to show love in a particular way. He wants to show the love of Jesus Christ and the church in a particular way in marriage, and that's why He has structured it this way. And again, in Roman society, this would be so countercultural what Paul writes here. The Romans would be thinking, what is he talking about nurturing and cherishing a wife? What is he talking about this mutual submission of esteeming one another more highly than yourself, of humbling yourself to protect and redeem the other person? That's not how Roman paterfamilias rule their household. It would be so odd to them. And it's so countercultural in our society today. We'd be asking questions like, what does he even mean, male and female? How can Paul talk of different gender roles? Aren't I giving up my rights if I let anyone get the upper hand over me? How can I be considered equal unless my role is exactly the same as the other? And we would raise all these counter-cultural complaints. But God's culture is not our culture. God says, look at my son. Look at how my son loved You are elevated as you decrease. You gain by losing. As the wife submits to Christ-like service of her husband, she's loved and cherished. And as the husband submits to serving his wife, he is respected. If you die to self, you will live to Christ. God says, my culture is not like your culture. I want to show you something different in this very special relationship. So what is headship and submission then? It's love, and it's the gospel. Why do I say it's the gospel? Because headship and submission is humble, self-sacrificing, redeeming, and sanctifying. It's all those key words that Paul used about Christ and the church. It flows out of reverence for Christ. Remember how I said that was important? Don't forget that, back in verse 21. It's gospel because... Christ-like headship and Christ-like submission, Christian headship and Christian submission flows out of a reverence for Christ. As we are able to treasure Christ, as we cherish Christ, as Jesus is our greatest delight, then we gladly esteem others more highly than ourselves, especially our wives, especially our husbands. And when we treasure Christ and esteem others, more highly than ourselves, then we put on display for the world what God wants the world to see. He wants them to see this unique kind of countercultural love that he has. We put on display for the world loving humility, self-sacrificing in order to redeem and sanctify another person, to build them up that they increase. And the same is being done to us. When we come into conflict in our marriage, the wife and the husband set aside their own desires and they set aside their own rights and they set aside their self-esteem and they esteem the others higher. What serves him best? What serves her best? And as the weight of our marriage conflicts are stripped of the baggage of our own demands and our own egos and our own fears and our rights and we take all that baggage off of the weight of the conflicts in our marriage, they become so much lighter. And then we look at those conflicts through the light of reverencing and cherishing Jesus who is the true source of our joy and cherishing. Suddenly those marriage conflicts are just much easier to resolve. They're just so much lighter. And the marriage that is put on display is one of sacrifice and washing and redeeming and restoring and nurturing and cherishing. And the world sees that and says, what is that? And God whispers, that's my love. 
That's a shadow. That's a picture of the love that I have for you. It's a picture of Christ and the redeemed. As culture sees marriages like that, Paul says it's a mystery to them, but they will see Christ in the church. It isn't the same as with parents and children. It's not the same as with employees and bosses. Paul doesn't bring these doctrines into those relationships. It's not the same with civilians and governments or students and teachers. Paul has instructions for those spheres of our lives. But he says here in this sphere, in this area of marriage where it's a unique man and a unique woman, there is a special kind of mutual submission and love that reflects the glory of the gospel just like Jesus and his church. And so in our marriages, this idea of submission and headship has to be grounded and rooted in our cherishing of Christ and in the context of all Scripture, understanding what Christ-like headship is and Christ-like submission is. So treasure Christ, delight in Christ, humbly esteem one another better than yourselves. Do the job that God has called you to do of loving and respecting each other in your marriages. And your marriages will flourish and Christ will shine through. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you preserved my voice this morning and that we got through it. Lord, there are some, so many truths here. You know we could spend six or eight weeks just on these verses. But Lord, I just pray that the Holy Spirit has spoken to our hearts that we've been able to see the truth in light of our own culture, the truth in light of our own upbringing, the truth in light of our own biases, the truth in light of our own preconceptions, the truth in light of our own fears and resistances, and that we can treasure you, reverence you, cherish you, and see submission and headship in light of Christ and know what that means for our marriages. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.